I'm excited for this morning, for preaching the end of chapter 5, the end of 1 Peter in general. We'll start into the book of 2 Peter next week. We're going to continue on in his letter, letters. Um, but this is the, the end of the first. And just to kind of catch us up, we were reminded of this unifying church, uh, thread that ties the church together. It's what Jason taught the kids about chapter 5. Humility. That's the unifying thread. So whether it's a church member relating to a leader or a leader to a church member, humility, that's, that's the name of the game. That's the big thing. We should clothe ourselves in that. That's what Peter says, literally. Clothe yourselves in humility to one another. Okay? So that's how, that's how elders, pastor elders that we looked at last week, that's how they're supposed to lead. And Jason brought the, the word a couple of weeks ago uh, to church members who are supposed to relate to elders in that same way, because God opposes the proud. Do you want to be in opposition to the most supreme being ever? I would hope not, but that's what our pride does. It pits us against God in opposition. It's not what we want. Hopefully that's not what you want. God opposes the proud, but it says he gives grace to the humble. Okay? So we respond to one another in church family, in humility, because we know that the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, is coming back. He's coming again. That's a, that's an, a, a surety that we can really bank on. He's coming again. The chief shepherd will appear, and we treat one another in humility with respect and dignity because we're confident that God cares for us. Look at verse 7. He cares for us, and so because of that, we need to continue to be sober-minded in how we live. And that's another theme in our text for today. Let's read verses 8 through the end of the chapter and then ask God's blessing on his word again. Verse 8, look at that with me. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is a Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Pray with me. Lord, it, we can look around and in moments see the need for peace. Maybe it, we don't even have to look outside of our own hearts. Maybe our own hearts are restless, Lord, and in need of that. Peter wants that to be the case. He wants us to have peace in Christ. And so as we, as we talk and as we dig in and, and study today, Lord, help us to be sober-minded. Help us to be watchful and careful. Not just so that we're not hurt, Lord, but that so we're obedient Faithful children, as you called us to be. Lord, we, we only do this because of your spirit in us. And so we pray that you would move and that we would learn. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So notice something. Maybe this word, sober-minded, sounds familiar. It should, because if you've been with us in 1 Peter, this is the third time Peter has used this exact word, exact phrase. You can look back at chapter 1, verse 13. He said, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then chapter 4, verse 7. Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then now in verse 8, he says again, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I just want to point out really quickly, in those three times when Peter uses this word, he tells us why. He gives us kind of his reasoning behind it in verse Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, be sober-minded by setting your hope fully on the grace of God in Christ. That, that's how we can be sober-minded. Set our hope in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7, be sober-minded. Why? Because the end of all things is at hand. And for the sake of your prayers, be sober-minded. Now in verse 8 of chapter 5, he says, be sober-minded. Why? Because the devil wants to devour you. If you're not paying attention, that could be what happens. So from what Peter says here, this is really the first time he's talked about Satan, the devil, our adversary. And, but we, we get a glimpse into who the devil is and kind of what his intentions are, what he's wanting to do. Notice that it says that he is the Christian's adversary. Okay, we kind of know this as like an opponent, but it actually has almost like a, a court of law idea. Like a lawsuit. Like Satan is bringing you into court for a lawsuit. That's, that's the idea here. He's falsely accusing Christians. He's slandering believers in the name of Christ at every opportunity. Notice that Peter doesn't paint a confusing picture here. Our adversary, the devil, is not friendly. He should, he's not friendly, but he should be taken seriously. Because I think that there are some people, maybe who are borderline, like, obsessed may be a strong word, but really concerned about the existence of Satan. And it's kind of like he's behind every closed door. He's in every dark hallway. But then I think there's the flip side. The other maybe extreme is that he doesn't even exist at all. He's just a figment of our imagination. Maybe he's even a tool that the Bible authors use to convince us to obey God. But he's not really real. And so there's two ends of the spectrum. And I don't think either of those are appropriate and right, especially based on what Peter says here. What does he say? He says that the devil is like a roaring lion. Okay. Now, I don't think we should put the devil on equal ground as God. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Okay, he's not God. It's not like there's this cosmic battle of equal good and evil battling against each other. That's not it. If you, that's the idea that you've got, get rid of it. Nowhere in the Bible does it paint that picture. God is supreme overall. He is not on equal ground with the enemy. But he also, the enemy, should also not be ignored like he doesn't exist. That's certainly not what Peter is wanting us to see here. Satan is real. He has a semblance of power in this world, 
And he's constantly wanting to use that power to do what? To devour people. So it says that he is like a roaring lion. I think this is really an interesting way to describe Satan. Because I can't think of any other place in Scripture where Satan is described as a lion. Who is usually described as a lion? Jesus, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. How is Satan usually described in Scripture? As, as a serpent, right? As a snake, as a conniving, uh, lying, seducing accuser. Okay? So I, I think that Peter uses this imagery on purpose. And there's a couple of reasons why I think he does that. One is to just to illustrate one of the way, main reasons or ways that Satan uses his, his limited power that he has here. And it's intimidation. He's a roaring lion, Peter says. Now, I read somewhere this week that you can hear a lion's roar, a physical lion. You can hear a, a lion's roar on the savannah up to five miles away. That's a long, that's a loud roar. Can you imagine that? Five miles away. So imagine that you are there and you are a petite little gazelle. And you hear a lion roar. What are you going to do? <laughs> You're going to five mile start. You're going to run. You're not going to, you know, find a nice place to bed down and raise a family. You're going to get away. Okay, imagine that, imagine you're another lion in that territory. And this guy, he sounds pretty big. You're going to go too. So whether you're a prey or another lion, you're going to run. You're going to be intimidated and scared. And this is one of the enemy's tricks against us. His schemes are many, and he preys on the sin that plagues us all. So the sin that's within each one of us, he preys on that, leading us into temptation or to think wrong thoughts about ourselves or about the Lord. And I do think that, you know, sometimes our main assumption about Satan is that he just he's just a tempter. He just tries to tempt us to sin. And certainly there is some of that. We see that in uh, his interaction with Jesus in the desert. When Jesus was fasting, he was tempting him to sin. Um, So it's true that he does that. But I think even more damaging is what Satan does in his role as an accuser. He's accusing us. And this is what that idea of the courtroom is really getting at. He's our opponent. And it's like we're in a court of law. There's an interesting story in the book of Zechariah where there's this vision of a high priest. And the high priest has dirty clothes. His clothes are not clean. And if you understand anything about that, that's not right. High priest should have very, there was various specific instructions on how to keep those clothes clean and free of sweat even. And, and there's this high priest with dirty clothes and Satan comes in this situation and he comes to accuse the high priest. He's not fit for this role. He's dirty. Here's what the Lord says. God says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has, who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Satan was trying to discredit the high priest because of his sin, by pointing out his sin. But the priest was clothed in something more important than clean clothes. 
the righteousness of Christ. God in his wisdom is saying, you cannot accuse him because he is mine. He is the brand that I plucked from the fire. And he belongs to me. He's under my protection. I think this, this kind of battle of temptation and, and of inward sin, I think this is one that we feel pretty quick when we become a Christian, isn't it? All of a sudden, the things that you thought were okay, that maybe even brought you pleasure and fun, all of a sudden now you're realizing, whoa, I'm not supposed to enjoy these things anymore. And in fact, I don't enjoy these things anymore. We feel that kind of thing. And, and even when Satan comes as an accuser to us, and he says, Rod, how do you call yourself a Christian when you just did that again? The, the problem with that, or the, the difficulty in that, is what he's saying is true. Right? He's accusing me of sin that I've committed. He, he's right. He's not making up a lie in this instance about me. It hurts because it's true. And the truth of the matter is, though, that the Holy Spirit comes, as God's given agent in our life, to convict us of sin as well. And so it's, it's kind of interesting to know, like, how do we know what is the accusation of Satan and what is the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Okay, here's just a, a good rule of thumb. This is in your notes. Here's a good rule of thumb. Satan, when he shows you your sin... It's in order to cripple you. When he shows you your sin, he's trying to ruin you. Ultimately, he's trying to destroy the image of God in you. That's what Satan does when he shows you your sin. But when the Holy Spirit comes in conviction and he shows you your sin, he shows you the same sin. This is wrong. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he shows you your sin in order to cleanse you, to redeem you. To restore the image of God in you. See, the purpose is very, very different. And so, ask yourself this. Maybe you've wrestled with this before. Ask yourself, when your sin is brought before you, where does your mind go? Does it, does it go to discouragement? To despair? Like, and there's no hope. I'm never going to be better than this. There's no way out. I'm a lost cause. Those are the words of the enemy. Not the spirit. When your sin is brought before you, does your mind go to seeking the forgiveness of God? To repenting of that sin? To restoration? That's where the spirit is going to lead you. Not to hopelessness. Not to despair. To restoration and repentance. To restore the image of God in you. He tells you the truth. It hurts. But he tells you the truth. And that in Christ, your debt has been paid. I love that line from the song, It Is Well. I think it's the third verse. Our sin was nailed to the cross. I know that's a a Bible passage as well. He says, your sin was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. And that's really about all we can say about that. Praise the Lord. I I think Peter has some insight into writing about the enemy. I don't know if you remember back in the book of Luke in the Gospels, chapter 22, there's this conversation that Satan had, or I'm sorry, that Jesus has with Peter about Satan. Let me read it. Luke chapter 22, 31 through 34. Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. 
that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny, deny me three times. And you know the story. It's exactly what happened. So it seems like maybe at, at some point in his life, Peter underestimated the power of the enemy. He wanted to sift him like wheat. And in the end, he did. He ended up denying Christ three times. But what was the redeeming factor in that, those verses that I just read? Did you catch it? It was what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Satan wants to come and sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. I prayed that your faith may not fail. See, Satan's accusations, his lies, even the truth of our sin, his power is no match for the power of Christ. He interceded for Peter, and he continues interceding for God's people today. Take comfort in that. Christ is interceding for you. When referring to Jesus as the Christian's permanent high priest, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25 tells us, says that he, speaking of Christ, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is right now interceding on your behalf to the Father. He's praying for you that your faith may not fail. So take heart. By the Spirit, Jesus is still winning the victory over Satan in the Christian's life, in your life today. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So you're no match for the power of Satan, but Christ is. And he lives in you. So back to our text. Peter says that Satan is prowling around menacingly, sneakily. Is sneakily a word? I don't know. But he's, he's prowling around and he's seeking someone to devour. The word devour is interesting. It means to swallow up completely. To swallow whole. The, the Hebrew form of it is used in the Old Testament in the story of Jonah. When Jonah is swallowed up completely by the big fish. It's also used, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about Christ removing the sting of, of death. And he says death will be swallowed up. In victory, it's the same word. The same word. That's what Satan wants to do to you. He wants to make you disappear. He wants where he goes. He wants to take you with him. The important question to ask is, well, can that happen to me? Maybe you're a Christian. You're thinking, can I be devoured by Satan if I'm a believer? If I if I know and love the Lord, and it could be tempting to look at this text. Tempting to know what we know about redemption in Christ. And think, though, that it, Satan's just all bark and no bite. You've heard that term before, right? Just, it's just the intimidation factor that we have to worry about. So if we can just get over that, then we're fine. And we don't have to do anything else. I, I've heard it said he's, he's kind of like a big lion, yes, but it's like his teeth have all been pulled. All been removed. Well, he's just, he's just shooting blanks. The gun doesn't actually have any bullets in it. It's just to scare us. How does, how does Peter talk about it? Look at verse 9. What does he say to do? How do we respond 
when we hear this roaring, when this, the enemy comes, what do we do? Very simply, he just says, resist him. So if there was no real danger here, all bark and no bite, if there was no real danger, if, if Satan's attacks are just for show, does it really matter if I resist him or not? Does it matter if it's not a very serious thing? Well, it doesn't sound like Peter is just talking about it as a game to me. I think there's, there's something at stake here. Sounds a lot more serious because I think because Peter knows what the sifting of Satan feels like. And so he's warning and trying to, to prepare Christians, you and me, for what this might feel like. Because there is something at stake here. So the question again is, well, can true born-again Christians be devoured by Satan? Based on Peter's simple but really potent instructions here, I would say no. A Christian can't be devoured by Satan but because of this, because there's a reason. A born-again Christian can't be devoured by Satan because born-again Christians resist him. You, you see what I'm saying? They fight back. Resistance of sin and Satan is not futile. It's what real Christians do. That You've heard that phrase, resistance is futile. Does anybody know where that came from? Somebody said it. The Trekkie in the room, Star Trek. Resistance is futile. I don't know if it was one of the Borgs or I'm not super familiar with it, but that was the idea. Is like, don't fight because it doesn't matter anyway. Well, I'm here to tell you that's, that's true. That's false. Resistance isn't futile. It's what real Christians do. Christians fight against temptation. They fight indwelling sin. They continue to resist the enemy because our eternity depends on it. I appreciate what John Piper has to say about this verse. He says, true born-again Christians have the Spirit of God within them. So when they see the lion coming, they don't say, ah, nothing's at stake here. I don't need to fight. I don't need to stir up my faith. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't need to be with other Christians. I don't need to be vigilant over my eyes and make sure that the flesh doesn't get the upper hand. I don't need to do any of those things because there's nothing at stake here. He's all bark and no bite. No, true born-again believers, they don't talk like that. True born-again believers have the Holy Spirit inside, embrace the Word of God that He's inspired. They hear the Word, resist Him now, and they fight. They fight because their life depends on it. God says He will give us success, but we have to fight. We have to resist, and so we do. And if they fight... Or if they don't fight, he says, they may not be born again. So what's your response when you're tempted to sin? What's your response when you're tempted to scream at your children because you're frustrated? Or to make a passive-aggressive comment to your spouse because they haven't done what you expected them to do? Or fill in the blank. I only bring those up because those are some of my temptations. Um, but what do we do when, when we're tempted with those things? Do we resist or do we do it? Do we give in? How we respond is important. Because even though we, we might think that our fighting is futile or feeble even, even though we think that it's not making a difference, if we continue 
just slipping further and further from the fight, from the battle, then maybe we don't have reason to believe that we're saved. James, in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 7, uses the same word that Peter does here in reference to Satan. He says, resist him. Paul uses the words, stand firm, in Ephesians chapter 6. That's what we're called to do, brothers and sisters. Not to go with the flow, not to give in, not to give way to the flesh, but to resist. Because it's not futile. Our fighting may seem feeble, but it's not. Salvation is real. Okay? It's a real work of God in the human heart, and there are effects that happen in a believer's life because of salvation. One of those effects is that when the lion comes, Christians fight. Another reason why we fight is listed in verse 9, the second half. Why we resist the tricks of the enemy, why we stand firm in the faith, is because we know that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we resist sin and Satan because we know that our problems are not entirely unique to just us alone. We are not alone in our sufferings, but we're also not alone in our resisting. And I I want us to understand that as the body of Christ. Because more than likely, many of us are tempted and struggle with the same kinds of sins. And for you to know that the person sitting across the aisle and a couple rows ahead of you is fighting it, gives you confidence to fight it. It can be done and it should be done. Remember what Peter said back, flip back to chapter 4, verse 2, or 12 with me. Chapter 4, verse 12. What did, what did Peter say? Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. He's saying this is not unique to you in this time or you in this region. Brothers and sisters, there are Christians literally on the other side of the world who are fighting the same fights that you are. It's not so much, I don't think that Peter's saying, well, misery loves company. Everybody, we're all in the same boat of struggling, so we can take confidence in that. I don't think it's so much that, but I think it's the strength that comes from knowing that we're not alone in this fight. And we're not the only ones afflicted. How many of you have ever read any of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Raise your hand. It's, it's not a pleasant read. Uh, not necessarily enjoyable, but man, you cannot read that book. It, it chronicles the stories of uh, Christians who are faithful unto death throughout the years. Sometimes in very gruesome ways. You cannot read a book like that, even though the content is so sometimes disturbing and difficult to get through. You cannot read that and not be encouraged in your faith. You can't read these kinds of stories and not think, man, would I behave the same way? Would I respond that way? You say, Lord, make it true of me. Guys, we're not alone. We're not alone in how we resist. We're not alone in what we are afflicted by. And I think Peter says it this way so that we take comfort from that truth. We're not alone. Peter says in verse 10 and 11, chapter 5, he says it's not going to last forever. Read that with me. 
after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Suffering is going to be a part of the Christian experience. Peter says, don't be surprised. But we don't suffer without hope. The God of all grace, Peter says, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The King James Version uses the phrase, make you perfect, instead of restore. Literally, it just means to repair you. To completely and thoroughly mend you. To make you complete. God's going to repair and bring to completion what's lacking in your character. And he, he works that out in us now as we are so being sober-minded, as we are being vigilant in the faith, as we're resisting sin, as we're standing firm in the faith. This is a thing that God is doing in us even now. Confirm, that second word that he use, uses there, is the same word that Jesus used with Peter when he was restoring him. After he denied him, after the resurrection, and he's having that conversation about, do you love me, Peter? Peter's talking about him, uh, what he'll do, uh, and then he, referencing back to the the situation there, what Peter or Jesus said to Peter when he said, "Look, Satan's going to come. He wants to sift you, but I prayed for you." And he says, "When you have turned, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." That's what he's doing. That's what Peter's doing here. I think he's following Jesus' instructions when. By God's grace, through Jesus' intercession for him, he turned and repented. He didn't go the path of Judas and hang himself. He repented of his sin through tears. Now he's strengthening you and me with his words, with his experiences. He's confirming this in us. It means to turn resolutely in a certain direction, to steadfastly set uh, the word, the next word, strengthen, is, is tied really closely to confirm, but it has the idea of being strengthened in spiritual knowledge and in power. It's the only time that that word's used in Scripture, but that's kind of what it's getting at there. And then the last word, establish you, just means to settle you, to lay your lay the foundation of. Literally, it means to ground you somewhere. So Peter's saying the God of all grace has restored you in Christ. His grace will settle you, will ground you, establish you there in Christ. God has set you there. He's confirmed you in His eternal glory in Jesus. And in Christ, you will be strengthened in the middle of your resisting. In the middle of the fight, you'll have strength. St. Augustine famously said, God, you have, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Guys, that's just true. No person is ever settled in their spirit until they come to faith in Christ. Apart from God, there is no settling. It's an act of divine grace. It's only possible because of grace and faith in Christ. Look at verse 11 of First Peter 2, or First Peter 5. If, if all of this is solely an act of grace, the grace of God, then to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's used almost this exact doxology back in chapter 4, verse 11. 
He just kind of restates it here again as well. In his power, God is going to do these things that Peter has just talked about. And every Christian, we just, we just simply say, Amen. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Quickly, I want to look at his final greeting, and then we'll close. Silvanus is listed. Paul, uh, Peter says that he's a faithful brother. He's the one by which the saints received Peter's letters. This is most likely the same guy that's listed by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, and that he lists at the beginning of both the letters to the Thessalonians. Um, this is the guy that d- delivered the letters to these churches, or he penned them as Peter or Paul dictated them, or is both. We're not totally sure. But either way, Silvanus brought Peter's letter to the Christians here, and Peter says that his recipients, those who are reading it, should do what? Stand firm in it. So we've we've got some instruction from Peter when the enemy is roaring like a lion. Resist him. Stand firm in the grace of God. The grace of God that has called you. The grace of God that will restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Stand firm in that grace. Don't waver from it. Plant yourself in the grace of God and refuse to be moved. Not in your own works. Not in anything else, but in God's grace. And then in verse 13, Peter says, She who is at Babylon... Uh, she who is at ba- Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. There's some that might think that this is like referring to possibly Peter's wife, the she there, uh, possibly even another prominent Christian woman in that area. I think most commentators agree, though, that this is probably referring to just a sister church. You guys know we refer to the United States of America as a she. It's, it's the same way we refer to churches as a she. I think also that kind of jives with what Paul says about the New Testament church, the bride of Christ and the feminine. Okay? So that all makes sense. This, this church, who he says is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So that makes sense. I think churches would do that, especially when that's the only mode of communication. We'd, we'd say, yeah, tell them I said hi. You guys have done that before, right? When somebody's leaving, hey, tell your mom I said hi, or your brother, or whatever. I think that's kind of what's going on here. The church says hello. Mark 2, he says, he lists him as his son, but I think it's more like a spiritual fatherhood, sonhood. Mark, he said, sends his greetings too. Mark would have been fairly well known in that region. This is probably also the guy named John Mark in the book of Acts. He ends the letter in verse 14. By telling them, he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Paul gives the same direction to Christians in Rome, to the churches in Corinth, to Thessalonica. It's the same kind of thing. This is just a customary greeting that shows affection, shows personal care for one another. We might consider it a handshake, but it's probably more in our culture like a hug. Shows care and affection for one another. And then he he ends it like this, and this is where we'll end too. He says, peace. To all of you who are in Christ. Simple. Peace in Christ. We have peace. But remember what we said Augustine said. He said that without Christ our hearts and souls just remain restless. We don't have peace. Without Christ it's impossible for us to have peace. Without Christ it's impossible for us to stand against the attacks of Satan. Do you know why? 
You know why it's impossible to stand against the attacks of Satan if you don't know Christ? It's because you're still on his team. Ephesians 2 says so. It says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that you currently, or that you walked in according to the power, the prince of the power of the air. So sinning accords or goes along with Satan's power in the world. And so when you sin, you're moving into his sphere, under his power. So faith in Christ transfers us from that, from that darkness, the kingdom of darkness that Satan rules, to the kingdom of light that God rules. And this is a work of God by his spirit. I want us to, to flip back. Sorry that I lied and said that was the end. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5. This is a, a promise that I just want to hit on as we close this letter out. That I want to be reminded of as we talk about being restful and resting in Christ. This is an incredible promise that Peter gives to Christians, that God gives to Christians. He says, who by God's power, he's talking about those who have been born again, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Don't miss this. Christians are being kept by God's power. They're being guarded by God's power through faith. Through faith. Through resisting the devil. So if you say, I'm kept by God. It says so right there. I'm kept by God. But then you're not resisting the devil through faith. You're contradicting God. John Piper uses a, a, uh, an illustration, and I found it really helpful. I wanted to share it with you guys. It has to do with a, a, a ring. If you, were, if you were at the wedding yesterday, we had some fun with the ring, the rings. Um, but this is the ring of a king. Okay, So imagine that you go to the court of the king. You're just a little nobody in the kingdom. And you get called in to the king's court. He's sitting on his throne and he stands up and he gives you, he takes a ring off of his finger and he gives it to you. And he says, you put on this ring and as long as you wear it, you'll be invincible. Invincible? Yeah. As long as you wear it, you'll be invincible. So, okay. So you write that down in your book. You say, thank you. And you head out. A couple blocks down the road, you're looking at the ring. I could probably get a good amount of money for this ring. So you take off the king's ring, you hawk it, you pocket the money, but then things come your way, and what do you do? I'm invincible. The king told me I was. Look, I have it written down right here. I'm invincible. The king said so. You see the problem with this story, right? He didn't obey. He didn't keep the ring on. It's easy to see the problem in that story, but this is what it looks like when we hear God say, you are kept by my power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed. When we hear that, and then we go out and say, well, hey, I'm kept by his power 
If Satan comes, no big deal. I don't really need to fight at all because I'm safe. I'm invincible. But you've taken the ring off. It doesn't work. God's chosen born-again people, they don't take the ring off. They keep it on because they trust the king. The evidence, in fact, that you are a child of God is that you keep the ring on. It doesn't come off. You see its true value, and you keep it on. The badge of the children of God is the battle. This is what John Piper says. He says, battle against sin and the devil, not perfection. The badge, that crown of glory comes later. But the child of God, they resist, they fight. They say, I will not lay down my shield. I will not take off my ring. I will not rip off my badge. I belong to God. And he will keep me safe through faith that he himself works in me. And this is what child of the king do even still. That suffering is not the end of the story for those who are in Christ by the grace of God. The roaring of the enemy cannot swallow the child of God who has the ring on their finger. Christians continue to battle sin and to resist Satan because they bear the image of the king. And it's proven by the ring that they wear and they keep on. And in the middle of the fight, in the battle, Children of God are restored, they're confirmed, they're strengthened, and they're settled in Christ. And so I just, just as we close, just ask, does that describe you? Are you settled today? When the roaring of the enemy comes, are you confident, not in walking down an aisle or repeating a prayer, but are you confident in your current relationship with Christ? Do you know him? Has the king given you his ring? If he has, you'll keep it on in the middle of the resistance. And if you haven't, if that doesn't describe you today, by God's grace, you've heard the gospel and you can respond in faith today. And if you do, this promise that we read from chapter 1, verse 5 is true of you. True for you. You you will be guarded by God forever. Glory to his name. Let's pray. Lord, it is a a joy to look in the mirror and to know that I'm not kept by my own work. Because there's days I don't even want to look in the mirror because of my sin. But it's a joy because I know that you don't look at me the same way. And you don't look at those in Christ the same way. My brothers and sisters who are listening this morning, you don't see their sin when you look at them. You see the blood of Christ because it's covered it. It's no more. We bear it no more. It's been nailed to the cross. What a glorious truth and reminder, Lord. And not only that, but now we have been, we are being guarded by your power till that day when the chief shepherd returns and we are glorified fully. Lord, we thank you for the letters of Peter. We thank you for his unique perspective in all of this. We thank you for the encouragement that it brings to the church. We thank you that we are not the only ones resisting and suffering, 
that there is more to this life. There are others who are fighting the good fight. Lord, may we take joy and refuge in that. Take heart in that, knowing that we're not the only ones, Lord. Um, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they battle against sin and the, the enemy. I pray, Lord, that they would continue to do it well, that they would continue to have faith in Christ and not to take that ring off, but to know, Lord, that they are yours because you have said so and because you have given them the seal of the Spirit in their lives as evidence of it. And so we thank you for all of these things in your name.